Welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. I'm Kara Williams, Global Head of Wealth Management. And today we're talking about our recent paper, Top Consideration for Financial Intermediaries. And I'm joined by my colleagues, Marika DeRue, Wealth Management in Europe, Peter Stewart from the Wealth Management team in the United States, and Luke Fitzgerald, who runs our Australian Wealth Management efforts. We're going to address specific items within our paper, but I thought just to get started, I thought it'd be good for us to cover a little bit on what we've been seeing as far as um, the impact of COVID on allocations, maybe by asset managers or by financial intermediaries themselves as they're working with clients. Peter, did you want to jump in on that? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, when we when we look at the impact that COVID has had, to me, it is primarily uh, the knock-on impact that we have seen on inflation and heightened inflation, not only in the United States, but around the world. Um, and so what I've seen from a number of my clients is trying to figure out the best way to adapt client portfolios uh, to account for inflation while still meeting return objectives and, and still being in a position um, where you are not exposed in the event that correlation between equities and fixed income uh, trends towards plus one, and at which point uh, we, we see a breakdown in the traditional diversification model. So my clients, I mean, have primarily been looking to do that across a number of different additions to the traditional 60-40 portfolio. Um, some have looked at commodity-oriented strategies, some have looked at other inflation-linked assets, but it's really driving uh, most of the questions that, that I'm getting um, from my clients. Super, thank you. Marika, what are you seeing in Europe? Yeah, we probably have seen three, kind of identified three macro trends that, that COVID has accelerated. So to Peter's point that, that modern diversification for sure advises like looking beyond returns from traditional beta and then being more inventive uh, trying to find ways for, for downside protection, but, but equally important, we've seen that they kind of want to all step up their innovation game and then looking more at private markets, venture capital, um, and, and kind of offer access to other emerging trends. So that's one, that modern diversification. And then the, the other two, one is that whole suitability um, opportunity set, so transition period from the gray, the green, and the, the in-between, and trying to see how advisors need to be able to accommodate. And then thirdly, really that changing of the guard attitude with um, kind of the Asian century looming on the horizon. So that's what we've seen a lot in the European markets. Well, we'll dive into a couple of those items in just a minute. Luke, what are you seeing down under? I'd certainly echo those, the comments of my two colleagues. Um, I think the COVID, in, in terms of the market washout, has been kind of as predicted. We model for that type of, um, we do model for pandemics, we do model for um, sort of market, not so much contagion. But I think one of the things is in our program, the, the review program proceeds as planned. We, we didn't make too many um, rushed adjustments to portfolios. What it has meant in a sort of an ironic sort of way, clients have been so much easier to get alongside, so much easier to um, to access and collaborate with, and so that's the really exciting thing. We're not we're not distracted anymore. We're we're working from home. We're focused. Clients are focused. So we've done a power of, of reviews and, and analytics work over the last two years, and that, that certainly continues into this year. So in some ways, COVID's been quite exciting for the investment programs for everybody. It's, it's it's prompted a reframing of uh, of the outlook and, and the, the planning going forward. 
the upside of um, of working with actuaries is the fact that we actually run scenarios on pandemics and contagion. Um, we do. <laughs> more prepared than the rest. Um, how about we cover a little bit of what what specifically in our paper? So um, where we we really discuss the the modernization of the sixty forty portfolio. Is this still alive and well, or are are, are we quickly and or slowly moving away from that? Um, whoever wants to jump in. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think the answer in the U.S. is we're slowly moving away from it, at least what I've seen uh, with, with most of my clients. There's a lot of questions around, you know, what could be done? What are other people doing? We haven't necessarily seen a whole lot of action yet. Um, I think there is a challenge in terms of defining the asset classes that should be considered for addition to the 60-40 portfolio, um, figuring out which are really going to enhance that portfolio the most while providing downside protection. And to Luke's point, I, you know, we're seeing a lot more focus around modeling and, and stress testing, figuring out where things are actually going to be going. So I, I think this has actually been a good exercise in terms of improving governance, in terms of how we think about overall portfolios and, and how we, we future-proof them. Yeah, the, and uh, down under, I mean, we, uh, the regulator expects us to stress test for both performance and liquidity on an annual basis. And, and we do that. We do that across all portfolios, not just ones for um, accumulators and, and retirees, uh, investment portfolios as well. Uh, they are changing. I mean, we we've got a longevity problem in this market, and across my client base, seventy uh, percent of clients are five years either side of retirement. And the sixty forty portfolio is one you'd probably start to exit in retirement and start to be more defensive. But longevity's coming to the market. People are going to outlive their savings. And so the reliance on the southern end of a, of a more conservative portfolio and in, in the bond space, um, that's, that's, that's been challenged. It's been really heavily challenged in this market. And you're seeing the, probably the, the greater use of a 60-40 portfolio um, for retirees. And it's not an investment anymore that's just domestic and global government bonds. We're looking at granular asset classes that would have traditionally been the domain of uh, institutional investors. Things like, as you said, you know, multi-asset credit, high yield, relative yield, uh, inflation-linked bonds, short-duration credit, and we'll even see private debt come in. So that's one of the exciting things. I mean, here at Mercer, we are in the business of selling great ideas, uh, and, and we have more ideas that, that apply to more of our clients uh, these days. Uh, Marika, I want you to, 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 to comment as well, but I just wanted to quickly... I guess question. I mean, it, these days that you know the, the market performance, particularly of equities, has been you know astronomical, right? So everybody's an investment genius these days. Um, you know, you you refer Luke to downside protection. I mean, do you really think investors think there is a downside? Um, you know it, that they they need to be protected from, or I, I get the sense that there are lots of investors that think it's just going up, up, up. Luke. Yeah, um, I think if you look at the demographic, the 65-year-old that's at retirement in in the Pacific market, they uh, they have seen they have seen downside. A lot of them had their careers challenged through the mid to late 80s. Um, the younger investors saw their parents maybe go out of work, so they do they do know what downside looks like uh, in markets and in certain living conditions. So there's not the unbridled optimism you might see in other markets. There's, there is a, a degree of caution. We rely quite heavily on the domestic property market for a portion of our, of our wealth, a large portion, uh, but certainly in retirement portfolios and, and 
there, there, there is there is an awareness that there's a downside, and so uh, both by by the people who oversee the industry and and, and by the participants. Super. And uh, Marika, what 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 do you think the the cases in Europe for for the sixty forty and and again, is, do they do you think people even see that there's a risk of a downside? Yeah, I I think the advisors or, or the wealth managers are are increasingly very clear with their clients what role each of the asset class can play within the portfolio. So, of course, there is still that, that fixed income in, in the portfolio, but what is it for? Is it for that risk reduction, income generation? What, what does each, what does the equity asset class, et cetera, all, all contribute? But certainly what we see, there's a lot of discussion around suitability of other sources of income or, or yield, such as, well, Luke mentioned a few, but preferred equities, distressed um, credit, even all the way to private markets, some large extent hedge funds as well. So I guess everybody's trying to, or the advisors with their clients, trying to make sure that their portfolios are suitably balanced across the a range of, of strategies, a range of asset classes to kind of provide downside protection as well as inflation protection, et cetera. That's fine. As we look around, you know, the, the idea of diversification, um, obviously you guys have touched on a number of different areas that, that wealth managers are potentially looking at diversifying portfolios as, as you know, the, the pure 60-40 portfolio starts to, to go, go away. How about the ever sort of fascinating topic of, of China, right? So it, the ebbs and flows of popularity of, of, of China, sort of where where are we today with that? Um, Peter, what, what, I mean, I give it particularly the United States, obviously that we've got really um, you know, quite quite tense um, uh, interactions between the two countries. So, so how are investors reacting and, and do you see interest? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said the ebbs and flows. Um, so I sat at our global investment forum, um, I guess it was three years ago now, and one of the questions to everyone in the room was whose economy has brighter prospects, uh, China or the United States? And so at the time, it was probably a 60-40 split in the vote that went to China. And based on what we've seen throughout 2021, I don't think you would still see that split today. I think a lot of it has pivoted back to the United States. Now, having said that, um, when you look at uh, emerging market allocations and the traditional underweighting of China within those indices. Um, I, I think there is an opportunity to have a dedicated China allocation. Um, however, that is not without significant political risk, particularly here in the United States and, and in China, given the regulatory crackdown that we've seen on some industries in China and with the you know, regulatory issues and in, in political issues we've seen in Hong Kong as well. So I think what that all points to is the importance of identifying a high conviction manager who's able to navigate uh, the, the complex environment that is China. Um, but I, I certainly think it's, it's worthy of an allocation um, or at least consideration in, in many client portfolios. Thanks. No, true. And, and um, I want to hear every, everyone's opinion on this one. But um, one thing that I found really surprising is the emergence of Chinese-based asset managers, too. I think in the past, the, where we've really seen the popularity of, of allocations for you know, ex-Chinese um, investors has really been with um, non-Chinese investment managers who have either agreements or some sort of, some type of JV on the ground, but you're starting to see a lot of Chinese-based managers, and and 
I know certainly in conversations with them that they advocate you know transparency and access and and I think they're trying to address a number of the issues that um, maybe some of the foreign asset managers might be facing or at least you know it's positioning. But um, anyway, so let, let, let's move on to um, Marika, your views on on what Europe is thinking of of China and and any allocations that you're seeing or not seeing. Yeah, no, very valid. Um, yeah, the EM space has as probably in a tougher place to be uh, over the last 10 years. So maybe if we'd had this conversation in 2011, it would have been a great place to have been. Uh, but we, we certainly see a lot of merits in EM, but we also see a lot of merits to have a China dedicated allocation. So while that, to, to many of Peter's points, that, that higher percentage in the indexes of, or in the developed indexes of China, obviously the, the assets are going to flow. So fundamentally, uh, you'll, you'll have to have a larger allocation to, to that market with also a very high alpha potential. So we, we believe that, or many of the clients we speak to um, are of the opinion that a more granular exposure would be um, for better, for better interests of their, of their end clients. And, and Australia has has certainly some complex relationships with China as well. So, um, so what what is the what's the view of the Australian market on investments in in China? Yes, we do have some complex relationships, and I think we can probably park the geopolitical relationships. For, from an investment perspective, um, we're very much able to to invest there. I think one of the challenges when we get into the nuts and bolts of an allocation is, um, and when we model an allocation, is just there are cost and implementation challenges. Um, you know, dedicated uh, allocation does remove, remove budget from a broader emerging market exposure. So we need to sort of model that out. And we do need to, if we're gonna, um, you know, look at emerging market managers, understand their China allocation. So we don't, we don't end up over, overweight to China. But I think we're entering a, an education process with clients and investors. Um, it's somewhat jaundiced by um, obviously, there's that, that thematic today, but equally, um, you know, there is a recollection of um, you know past investment experiences with, with BRIC countries, so Brazil, Russia, India, and China, and and so it's just a case of um, I think educating investors, and, and in our space that can take a period of years, but but the best way to educate people is with numbers and performance, and I think we've got a lot of highly rated managers present in China. To your point, Cara, from both. You know, local local managers and global managers, highly rated managers with with not insignificant track records of about performance. So I think, uh, you know, we're very much ready to make that allocation. It's it's just how and and, and coupled with a sound education process. It's funny the fact that you mentioned brick. I mean, it, it, if if we were able to say that nobody <clears throat> would be investing investing in the first three letters um, nowadays, then I don't think you would have believed it, right? They were, that was the, the the great the great hope um, a number of years back, and now it seems like China's the last last one standing, at least for now. Right. Um, I think that'd be um, a fair point. And now I want to try to touch on um, you know, something that, that obviously has been discussed really incessantly is you know, the emergence of ESG, the incorporation of ESG. Um, we've seen lots and lots of managers starting to incorporate different aspects of, of ESG. So you know, obviously environmental, social, as well as governance. Um, in our paper, though, we, we do cover um, you know, some, of the, some of the, I guess, the, the, what we're starting to see on the sustainability side, right? So, so this is obviously more on the environment within the environmental focus. 
I, I'd love to get a sense of you know, where you see clients interested and, and concerned or allocating at all, especially just because you know Europe does tend to be quite different than the US and, and Australia, which are probably more aligned in, in, in where they're, they're allocating. But anyway, I, um, Marika, why don't, why don't you um, start us off with a little bit of uh, discussion around sustainability in, in, in Europe? Yeah, no, thanks, Cara. So I think I think we need to be very clear that there is for, for many of our clients, uh, obviously, and, for, and there should be a distinction between sustainability stroke ESG versus impact. So impact will be more investor led um, and, and you probably need partners there to implement your beliefs. Well, there's a bit sustainability to your point that that kind of has the risk factors. Um, kind of looking for opportunities as well as um, kind of sources of return uh, that, that it brings. So we I would say that across the European markets, there is a big distinction between what countries do uh, and then also a very big distinction between the type of clients that some of the wealth managers service in terms of appetite for that sustainability integrated uh, portfolio. Uh, it's fast growing, absolutely. Uh, there were just some stats coming out about here. There's the regulation around the SFDR regulation, Article 8, Article 9 funds. If you saw the flow of um, assets that have gone into the Article 8 and 9, it's, it's literally coming from a few main countries. So fast growing, but big uh, differences, I would say, between appetite of clients serviced by wealth managers between country and even then within the country. Thanks. Luke, what have you seen? I like the way, yeah, I like the way you framed it up, Marika. When I look at our market, we're decades into talking about ESG and, and, and blending that, that into portfolios. I think we've now we've now crossed the crossed the Rubicon, so to speak, where um, we see broad acceptance of sustainable investing across all clients. Um, in our accumulation portfolios, it's it's an expectation that that's built into the board to every portfolio now. And now is that, sorry, but, sorry to interrupt, Luke. Is that across all the investments, or is it an allocation? No, it's it's across a diversified portfolio. So it's not a it's not a deliberate allocation. It is that your diversified portfolio will pass due diligence, will pass oversight when looked at through an ESG lens, and we build portfolios with that in mind. Um, but I think. To your point, Marika, that that when I look at our high net worth client base, that becomes deliberate. That becomes impact investing. That's that's actually looking to um, really make potentially single asset class investments um, to either make a positive impact, and with a lot of that, it's really heartening to see. Uh, but equally, to gain first mover advantage on uh, on returns, both both enlisted portfolios and, and an unlisted portfolios. So uh, the market's kind of, we've, we've, we've passed our first hurdle at building SGN and then we're now on to the, to the next wave and that's equally ex as exciting. Thanks for that, Luke. I, I, I think the um, the issue that I've seen, and we'll, we'll, Peter, I want to hear your thoughts, is um, really that for impact investing is very difficult when it comes to diversification, right? The, you know, it, it, people tend to get focused on the thing that they, they let's say, care the most about. Um, so you end up quite highly allocated to what you're trying, where you're trying to make an impact, right? So you end up, 
and probably inadvertently um, have, having a having diversification issue, right? Because it's sort of relatively impossible to be well diversified across an impact portfolio. Um, but Peter, let's hand this over to you as to what you're seeing in the US as far as sustainable investments and, and any sort of in innovative solutions across it. Yeah, so I, I mean, my first thought would be, so it's, it's no secret that the United States has had a long and complex history when it comes to sustainable investing in, in ESG, um, you know, particularly in, in the retirement space. Um, so I, I think the challenge that we face in the United States and, and that intermediaries face is defining a consistent set of investment beliefs and a consistent definition of be it ESG or sustainable investing or even impact investing. Um, you know, you ask 100 different people what they think that means, and you'll come back with 100 different answers. And the problem is when you have uh, a number of advisors out there in the field, uh, you need to make sure that you're providing consistent messaging um, to, to end investors. Um, and you also need to be able to establish and demonstrate performance, performance-driven benefits um, of those decisions. So I, I think the real key and the conversations we're having with you know, a number of my clients are around um, having a governance framework, having a very clear definition of exactly what you're looking for, and then having a clear way of implementing that into a ratings system where you can say, hey, you know, this is what we told you we're looking for. We evaluated this manager on these criteria, and this is where they landed. Um, yeah, and in terms of the, just to quickly comment on that diversification piece, um, you know, I, I think Obviously, that is a, a client level conversation, but I do think we're starting to see more of our clients say, um, I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of the, the diversification benefit because this is something I believe in and this is a, a change we need to make. So certainly that hasn't taken over everywhere, but it's a, it's a growing trend in the U.S. market. Oh, and I think we've also seen, um, you know, in, in originally when people were trying to do investments um, into things like impact, there was a almost an understanding that they were sacrificing returns, whereas now that's not the case, right? So impact investment actually does mean, yes, I, you know, it's investing for good for, for both the investor and, and for the recipient of, of those funds. Um, I think we're coming up to near to the end of our time. Um, but I wanted to make sure that if we covered anything um, else that's in, in the paper, you guys have certainly brought it all, all, all to life. And there are a number of other um, items that we haven't covered on today's conversation. Um, quick, quickly, I'd love to touch on just on alternatives and, our, and allocations to alternatives. It's an area that obviously we could have another, another 25 minutes on, but are you seeing any kind of increased flows going into alternatives as, as far as some individual investment investors? Marika, Europe? Um, I, I want to say full out yes, but I, I, I probably slightly nuanced the answer is there is a lot of um, demand and investigation in how to make happen. I think hedge funds probably slightly more straightforward with daily dealing hedge funds uh, on offer. I think we see a vast, vast demand for some way of tapping into that private markets um, opportunity set. And for a long time through regulatory and uh, the environment that it was only accessible to institutional investors, that has been fast changing. I would say the last 18, 24 months, new fintech platforms have come to, to life. We know many of them. Uh, that have done really, really well. And I think this opens up a very good opportunity for the more effectively retail 
end of the market, the, the qualified investor or retail investor, whether it's ultra high net worth or high net worth, for a long time, it was very hard for them to tap into this opportunity set. So yeah, the sh short answer is either the clients want to do it or they're looking very, very hard in how they can offer this to their client set. What about in Australia, Luke? Yeah, allocation to alternatives hasn't changed, um, be that growth or defence alternatives. But the, the, the transition is in what we're allocating to within those asset, that broader asset class. So we touched on the fixed interest earlier in the discussion of the 60-40 portfolio. And I agree with Rika that we are starting to look at, well, this, this private market seems interesting. Now, how can we access that within the expectations of the, the prevailing regulators around liquidity and that sort of thing? So we, we like you, we see a lot of investigation into the pathways of investment. Um, and, and what's great about our industry is, you know, when there's product available, product will find clients as fast as we can find clients. So it's important that we're there with, you know, great insights on managers and strategies, great insights on how to build those, those particular assets into portfolios. Well, I think from Marika's point about the um, democratization of, of access to those is, is, is critical as well. So, um, well, anyway, so th thanks to all three of you. Um, I think it was a really robust and interesting conversation. Obviously, anyone needs to learn and wants to learn more, um, by all means, read the paper or um, you know, feel free to, to, to reach out to, to one of the folks on, on today's um, podcast. And thanks to everybody for listening.